Remain standing for our gospel lesson and sermon text from the first part of John 17. Give your ear to God's gospel. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given to him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself. With the glory which I had with you before the world was. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to us, for glorifying him on the cross and in his resurrection and ascension, and also for sharing that glory with us, your people, the people that he purchased on the cross. As we meditate on these things today, fill our hearts with joy, with love for you and for one another. We ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. You can open your Bibles, your copy of the Scriptures, however that may look, to John 17. If if you're the note-taking type, you might want to have your pen ready. We'll be looking at other Scriptures that I'll read to you, and you can jot them down and go back and look at later. What kind of communication existed between the three persons of God in eternity past, before there was space and time and matter? What did their communion with one another look like before they created the heavens, and the earth. We know they existed, three persons in one essence, before creation. What was the nature of their communion, their communication, their talking with one another, if that's how we can think about it? What shape did their relationships take? Have you ever wondered about that? Have you ever thought about those questions? It's natural for us to speculate on the personal relations of the Godhead before time began. We wonder, did the three persons communicate with one another using language? Does a human father's communication with his son in any way resemble the communication of the eternal father with his eternal son? And if so... How so? Now, on the one hand, this speculative line of thought is somewhat unavoidable and, and maybe even oftentimes helpful in some ways. It reminds us that the three persons of God have always been persons. 
persons who have eternally related to one another, persons who have eternally loved one another, eternally shared thoughts with one another, eternally doing what persons do. On the other hand, this speculative line of thought, if we're not careful, can easily distract us from the simplicity that characterizes the communication between the Father and the Son in Scripture. We can forget what's revealed to us if we speculate on what is not. John 17, in particular, challenges any notion we have that the communication between God the Father and God the Son is wholly theoretical, philosophical, or beyond our comprehension. The prayer of Jesus in John 17 has been called the Holy of Holies of Sacred Scripture because in it Christ bears His soul. He removes the veil so that we can see into the inner sanctuary of his heart. John 17 was read to the Scottish reformer, John Knox, every day at the end of his life. I don't know how many days. But in his final moments, Knox testified that this chapter was a source of great comfort and strength as he faced death. Martin Luther said of this chapter, This is truly, beyond measure, a warm and hearty prayer. Jesus opens the depths of his heart, both in reference to us and to his Father, and he pours them all out. It sounds so honest, so simple. It is so deep, so rich, so wide, no one can fathom it. Luther's associate, Philip Melanchthon, wrote, There is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or on earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. Think about how amazing this is, that we get this window into the life of God, into the relationship between the Father and the Son, into the prayer life of Jesus Christ. This prayer has three parts. In verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays for himself. And then in verses 6 to 19, he prays for his disciples, the ones who followed him on, when he was on the earth. And then the remaining of the chapter, verses 20 to 26, he prays for those who will follow him, who will trust in him all the way to the end of time. In other words, in those last seven verses or so of the chapter, he prays for us, for you and me. These 26 verses constitute what one preacher and theologian has called the true Lord's Prayer. The prayer that we pray every week in our service, the one that begins our Father, who art in heaven, could more accurately be called the disciples' prayer. It's the prayer that Jesus gave his followers, us, to pray. John 17 is the Lord's prayer. It's the prayer that Jesus himself prays on behalf of his disciples. 
Some have properly termed this prayer the high priestly prayer because here Jesus intercedes for his church as our high priest before the throne of God. And today we'll we'll limit our consideration to that first section, verses 1 to 5 of the Lord's Prayer. And the thrust of this passage is a petition for glory. Jesus prays for glory. In fact, he even prays for his own glory. We see this clearly in the first verse and the fifth verse. Verse 1 says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And then verse 5 reiterates this prayer, but adds something. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory that I had with you before the world was. Now, before we launch into this, we need to ask, what does it mean for Jesus to be glorified? What is Jesus specifically praying for when he asks the Father to glorify him? Well, in this passage, he prays for three aspects of glory as it relates to him. He prays for his glory in death. Second, he prays for his glory in heaven. And third, he prays for his glory in the church. We're going to look at each of those. He prays for his glory in death. He prays for his glory in heaven. He prays for his glory in the church. First, he prays for his glory, his, he prays for his glory in death. First thing Jesus says there, In verse 1, his father, the hour has come. What hour is that? Which hour is he talking about? He's talking about the hour of his death. But in order to appreciate the significance of this hour, we must remember what came before. What led up to this? For 33 years, Jesus had already glorified the Father. He had been glorifying the Father in his sinless obedience to God's law. Jesus states this explicitly in verse 4. Look down there at verse 4. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Our Lord's spotless life of faith and faithfulness is itself a monument to God's glory. Now, I, I actually think he's talking here in verse 4 about, he's including the cross. So he's kind of speaking proleptically, which means he's looking ahead, including what's going to happen in, in the next few days, and including that in everything that's led up to it as well. But we need to meditate on what made the cross what it was for us. And part of that is his spotless life, his faithful, sinless life, which is a monument to God's glory. Your life of faith and faithfulness can also glorify God. Did you know that? 
Now, you don't have, you're not going to be sinless, but you don't have to be sinless like Jesus to lead a life that actually pleases God, that brings him glory. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He's not giving us an exhortation, a command that's impossible. It's, it's doable by God's grace. 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Even in your sinfulness, it's possible for you to live before God in a way that brings Him honor and glory, in a way that pleases Him, the way a child pleases His Father here on earth. You can imitate Jesus in this way. Not perfectly, but you can imitate him truly. This is also true of us corporately as a congregation. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God is not a stern guy up in the sky who is hard to please. You can glorify him. You can please him with a, with a life of simple and imperfect obedience. It's true that apart from Christ, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews 11 says that. But with faith, it's easy to please God. He is not hard to please. He's the father who is easy to please. Human fathers are often hard to please. In their sternness. They sometimes feel ashamed of their children rather than being glorified by them. But your heavenly father, his heart is bent toward being pleased by the works of his children. Think of a think of a new two new parents, their first child, and how pleased they are with their newborn as they bring him or her home. And they're looking at this child and they're just, whatever the child does, it doesn't matter. It pleases these two parents. Well, it's even easier for your father in heaven to be pleased by you than it is for brand new parents to be pleased by their newborn infant because God's love for you in Christ is perfect. It's pure. It's bountiful. It's deeper than any love that you experience or see here. God is not hard to please. Keep this in mind as you think about Paul's exhortation in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1. Brethren, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, how you ought to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Brothers and sisters in Christ I urge you to glorify God. I urge you to please God 
just as you are doing. Just as you are doing. And to do so more and more. And I, and I encourage you to remember that because of God's love for you in Christ, this is far from impossible. God is ready to be pleased. At the same time, it's true that Jesus glorified the Father. He pleased the Father in a unique way, in a way that no one else could. In verse 4, Jesus says that he glorified the Father by finishing the work he gave him to do on the earth. And that's a work that no one but Jesus could have done. The work that God gave Jesus to do was to die on the cross, but not just to die on the cross. The cross of Christ is powerful to save you only because it was preceded by a sinless life. Jesus is that spotless lamb that can actually, for the first time in history, take away real sin, the sin of the world. Unlike you and me, Jesus wasn't born under the dominion and tyranny of sin. He was born under the, under the law, under the curse of the law, even, in a sense. He was born under the law, but he was not born under its tyranny and its dominion. It did not have control over him the same way it did us. His life was untainted by sin. He was never weighed down by sin. For this reason, he was able to bear that curse, the curse that the Father put on him, the curse of your sin on your behalf. And that's what he did on the cross. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 3 and 4. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Jesus glorified the Father first by obeying the law perfectly for you and then by hanging on a tree for you. He obeyed for you. He died for you. And if you're united to this Jesus... If you are connected to Christ by faith in Him, His obedient death satisfies God's wrath against you, the wrath that you were conceived under. And His obedient life is credited to your account. And it is as if you had obeyed perfectly, even though you were under the weight of the law, helpless. So when God looks at you, he doesn't look at the ugly sins of a sinful sinner, even though you are a sinful sinner who sins. That's not what God sees. Instead, he sees one whose scarlet sins have become whiter than pure snow. In Jesus, your crimson stain has become whiter than wool, as Isaiah 1 puts it. The cross of Christ glorifies the Father because in it we see God's love for us. We see the steep price He paid for our redemption from sin. The death of Christ proves there's no limit to God's love for His people. He paid the greatest price. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is upside down. It's counterintuitive because it claims that Christ was glorified in his death, glorified on a Roman cross. According to Scripture, the greatest glory is the glory that comes from denying yourself and taking up your cross. Now, we don't tend to believe this, but Jesus knew it. He knew that hanging on a Roman cross was the most glorious thing he could do on earth. And that's why he did it for the joy that was set before him. To the world, the cross was merely shameful, foolishness or a stumbling block, full of shame. But Jesus despised the world's shame and asked his father to transform his death into something glorious. And that's what he did. He turned it into the most glorious event in human history. Denying yourself and taking up your cross is never truly shameful. When you bear your cross for the joy set before you, and God has set before you a similar joy, your Father transforms that cross into glory, just as He did for Jesus. So Jesus prays for His glory in His death in the cross. Second, Jesus prays for His glory in heaven. Now, his focus, right there at the beginning, the first thing he says, his focus we see is on the cross. When he's talking about the hour having come, that's the hour of the cross. So his focus is on the, the shameful yet glorious death. But he looks through the cross and petitions God for the glory that awaits him on the other side of death. Verse 5, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The glory Jesus asks for here is not just a glory that lies ahead. It's not just a glory that's in his future. It is that, but it's not just that. It's also the glory that Christ enjoyed with the Father in eternity past. John 17, 5 is one of many verses in John's gospel alone that establishes all by itself, just this one verse by itself establishes that the Son is fully God as well as fully human. Here we see that God, that, that, that the Son existed not just before he became a man, okay, so we, we know he preexisted his incarnation, but, he, but also he existed before the world was. He existed before anything that was made was made. As John puts it in the first chapter, he shared his Father's glory in eternity, before time, space, and matter. What was, what was that glory like? What was Christ's glory like Before the foundations of the world. Before the world was. We can only dimly perceive it. Imagine it. We we do get some glimpses of that glory in the Old Testament. Not the glory before time. But the glory before he was incarnate. In places like Daniel 
7, and Isaiah 6. But we don't really, we have to just, again, speculate, imagine that glory before time began. But we can see clearly, here's what we can see clearly, that he was willing to set aside all the benefits of his glorious existence in heaven and before heaven for our sake. He was, he was willing to set that aside to count it all nothing for our sake. Philippians 2.7 says that he made himself nothing. He disrobed himself of his eternal glory and clothed himself with our humanity, our feeble humanity. And then he subjected himself to die at the hands of those that he created. Philippians 2 doesn't just speak of the glory that Jesus set aside, though. It also goes on to speak of the glory that Jesus acquired as the result of his sinless human life and his obedient death. Philippians 2, 9 and 10, you're familiar with this. Therefore God exalted him to the high place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. There there that word glory is. So, so notice that by the time we get to that famous hymn or poem, song, in Philippians 2, the glory of Jesus ends up being to the glory of God the Father. His life and His death were for the glory of God, and even His exaltation was for the glory of His Father. So Paul's poem or song in Philippians 2 confirms that our Lord's prayer in John 17, 5 was answered. The Father bestowed on the crucified Christ at least as much glory as he had before the world began. And someday you, if you stand firm to the end, someday you, fellow believer, will get to partake of, partake in that glory in a way that you can barely imagine now. You'll get to experience it in a way that you, can, you can't really fathom now. You'll, you'll get to experience the unspeakable joy of that glory with a joy that surpasses human understanding. So hold on to the end, Christian. This glorious joy is waiting for you. Peter says it's been prepared for you. It's ready for you. Part of the beauty of our Savior is that He shares His heavenly glory with us. He shares it with you, and He will do so forever. Don't let go of Him. So first we saw that Jesus prays for His glory in death. Second, He prays for His glory in heaven and now third, Jesus prays for his glory in the church. As, we, as we've considered verses 1, 4, and 5, we've been narrowing in on verses 2 and 3, the heart of Christ's prayer for glory. Here we also see the heart of Christ for his church, for his bride. His glory in 
his death on the cross and his glory in heaven at the Father's right hand converge in a way in his glory in the church. His purpose in coming and living and dying a glorious death and rising from the dead and ascending to his glorious throne at God's right hand was to give eternal life to his people, which brings him glory. I want you to see that logic there. I'm going to say that again. His purpose in living, in coming and living and dying a glorious death and rising from the dead and ascending to his glorious throne at the Father's right hand was to give eternal life to his people, which brings him glory. Look again at verses 2 and 3. As you have given him authority, and remember Jesus is referring to himself in the third person, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given to him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Don't miss the logic there. In verse 2, Jesus draws our attention to his giving believers eternal life. But then, how does he define that eternal life in verse 3? Look at verse 3. How does he define eternal? Eternal life. Eternal life is knowing the Father and the Son. We could simplify it even more. Eternal life is knowing God. Think about that. Eternal life is equals knowing God. Do you see that in verse 3? To ask if you have eternal life is to ask if you know God. And therefore, to ask if you're, if you're glorifying God or bringing glory to God, we're bringing glory to God, is to ask, do we know God? Do we have eternal life? So how do you glorify Christ? How does the church glorify Jesus? How do you glorify him? By knowing him. So the next question to ask is, what is involved in knowing him? What kind of knowledge is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about accurate, an accurate knowledge, an intimate knowledge, and an ever-increasing knowledge. We're going to talk about those three aspects of this knowledge. An accurate knowledge, an intimate knowledge, and an ever-increasing knowledge knowledge. First, first, the knowledge of God that glorifies Christ is an accurate knowledge. Not any knowledge will do, because not any God will do. The knowledge of God that glorifies Jesus is knowledge that is rooted firmly in Holy Scripture, God's Word. It's more important than ever for us to reclaim the crucial importance of truth, of accurate, factual, scripture-based knowledge of God and His Christ. Biblical ignorance is on the rise among believers. Theological ignorance is 
an increasing problem, even in Bible-believing, orthodox churches. Fewer and fewer Christians, even fewer and fewer pastors, are able to articulate an accurate understanding of the person and work of Christ. And yet we live in an era in which the Scriptures are more accessible and theological resources are more plentiful than ever before. So, Christ the King Church, let's glorify God and His Christ with accurate, Scripture-saturated knowledge of who they are, of who God and His Christ are. In doing so, we mustn't forget that God is not glorified by a knowledge of Him that is true and theologically precise if it is also cold and impersonal. In addition to being accurate, the knowledge of God that glorifies Christ is an intimate knowledge. Intimate fellowship with you is what God is after. It's, it's built into that word know or knowledge. He wants you to know Him even as he knows you. And to truly know someone is to know that person deeply and intimately. When a wife tells her husband that he doesn't seem to really know her, she doesn't mean that he's unaware of her existence. She isn't saying that he doesn't know a lot of facts about her. What she means is that he doesn't know her heart. He doesn't know what she's about. He lacks intimate knowledge of her, perhaps because he has failed to cultivate true intimacy with her. Christ invites you to cultivate intimacy with him and his Father. That's what this knowledge is. And you do this by engaging him not only with your head, but also with your heart. We need to remember this maybe especially in our tradition, in our theological tradition, being reformed, we think of knowledge as something that happens primarily in the head. But in Scripture, knowledge is something that happens in the head and the heart. The knowledge of God that glorifies Christ is an accurate knowledge and an intimate knowledge, but it's also finally an ever-increasing knowledge. It's a growing knowledge. Knowledge. The grammar of verse 3 does not suggest a one time knowledge of God, which would be a stagnant knowledge, something that happens just in one kind of event and then it's done. Rather, it suggests an ongoing knowing, a, a personal knowledge that is always bustling with fresh encounters, always going deeper, always becoming more informed, always becoming warmer and more familiar at the same time. Eternal life is nothing more and nothing less than knowledge of the true God and of His Son, Jesus Christ. Eternal life is, equals, a true knowledge 
of the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ, a knowledge that is accurate, intimate, and ever-increasing. You see, eternal life is, a, is less about obtaining a life that is everlasting and more about knowing the personal God who is everlasting. Christ is glorified in you when you are growing in that accurate and intimate knowledge of Him and His Father. God is glorified in you when you are receiving and enjoying eternal life with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is glorified in you when you are reflecting His glory. And to be reflecting His glory, you must be looking at His glory. You can't reflect it if you're not beholding it. Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians 3, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. That's verse 16. Skipping to verse 18. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into His image from one degree of glory to another degree of glory. To have eternal life is to know God. To know God is to behold His glory, which is revealed to you in Jesus. When you behold the glory of Jesus, when you look at Him in His Word, after the Spirit has taken that veil off of your face, the result is that you become more glorious. You become more like the one you are beholding. His glory fills you so that you reflect it. And, and when this when this glorious transformation is taking place in you, God and His Christ are being glorified in you. Let's give thanks that God has caught us up into this story. Father, we thank You for saving us, for giving us eternal life, for giving us a knowledge of You, the one true God, and of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh God, help us to behold your glory revealed in your Son, the glory of Jesus Christ. And as we do so, work in us that glory, transform us, and bring us, by the power of your Spirit working in us, from one degree of glory to another. May you be gracious to do this in us. May we experience the joy of moving to higher degrees of glory in your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.